We're going to begin our study in earnest this evening, starting at verse 20. But, but why don't I read, starting at verse 17, just so we all know the setting that we're dealing with here. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and with a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. Then, verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Jesus gave the following message that begins in the middle of Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. He gave this following message in the region of Galilee at a time when his popularity was increasing. And this is a very famous message that Jesus gave beginning at Luke chapter 6, verse 20. He's beginning a section of recording teaching often called the Sermon on the Plain. You heard me correctly. I didn't say the Sermon on the Mount. Because we're going to make a distinction between this Sermon on the Plain that begins here at Luke chapter 6, verse 20, and what Jesus also has recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Because one thing we note is verse 17 of Luke Luke chapter 6 tells us that this took place at a level place. But it's really not the geography of it that makes me say that this was of two separate occasions. Look, let's just talk about what's obvious. The recorded teaching in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is similar in many ways to this message that we find in Luke. Now, there's much more material in the message recorded in Matthew than there is here in Luke. There's just a little bit of the message in Luke that is not included in Matthew but it's much less in total that we find in the Gospel of Luke. And so many people wonder, is this two different recordings of the very same message, or was this basically the same message that was spoken on two different occasions? I have to say, if you take a look at the scholars and the Bible commentators, you'll find them divided on the issue. But there's something that we have to remember about the ministry of Jesus. And don't ever forget this. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He went all about mainly the region of Galilee, although, of course, he did some of his ministry in the city of Jerusalem. That ministry is highlighted in the Gospel of John, not in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But nevertheless, Jesus did the majority of his ministry in the region of Galilee as an itinerant preacher going from city to city, from village to village, and preaching. And what did he preach? What was the main content of his messages? Let me read you a summation of this from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, if Jesus was going to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, what would that look like? I suggest to you that it would look very much like what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It would look very much like what we find in here, the Sermon on the Plain. 
The, the material would overlap a great deal, yet I really believe that these were separate messages given on separate occasions, but around Jesus' main message as an itinerant minister from city to city and village to village. And this is the theme of the whole message. I come to you preaching the kingdom of God. And you're going to find out something. The kingdom of God is not what you expected it to be. Ladies and gentlemen, in the days that Jesus came to do his ministry, there was a very high expectation of the Messiah to come and to bring his kingdom. People were looking for the Messiah, but here's the problem. They were looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. They were looking for a a kingdom of retaliation and retribution against the Romans. They were looking for a kingdom of political and military power. They were looking for the kind of king who could bring down fire from heaven and wipe out the Roman legions and lift up Israel to a place, once again, of political and social and and, and dominance in the region. And Jesus, through this message, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which he did from city to city, I think Jesus announced this loud and clear This kingdom that I present to you is not what you expected it to be. My friends, itinerant preachers often repeat themselves to different crowds, especially when they're teaching upon the same topic. And this is probably the same sermon, basically, as Matthew chapters 5 through 7, but at a different time, in a different place, and basically of a different order. Now, notice as well that it says very plainly in that first line of verse 20. Would you look at it again with me, please? He lifted up his eyes toward his disciples. In Luke's gospel, it's no accident that this great message of Jesus comes immediately after Jesus chose the twelve. We dealt with that last week, earlier in Luke chapter 6. Jesus first chose the twelve Then Luke records this great message describing the kingdom of God that Jesus presented. It's after he chose the disciples, yet before he commissioned the disciples to go do their own preaching ministry. We're going to find that in Luke chapter 9. So check it out. First, Jesus selects the disciples. Then he teaches them and others who will listen about the kingdom of God Then he sends them out to do preaching on their own. It was part of their teaching to hear and understand this message because it helped them to clearly understand and explain what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, it's clear that the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain that we're going to take a look at here had a very significant impact on the early church. The early Christians made constant references to the themes and the ideas and the very words that are presented here in the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, I think that that had to do with something of the shining glory that was evident in those first disciples. They grabbed something from the Sermon on the Mount. Now notice it says right there that he said, he spoke. What Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount has long been recognized as sort of the sum of Jesus's or of anybody's ethical teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells his followers, this is how you should live in both your action and your attitude. You know, it's been said that if you took all the good advice 
on how to live that was ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor. If you took out all of the foolishness, which would be a lot, and if you boiled what remained down to the real essentials, if you did all that, you'd be left with a very poor imitation of what Jesus taught in these chapters. You see, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, I'll use them interchangeably because, again, I think they're basically the same message, though delivered on different occasions. It's sometimes thought of as Jesus' declaration of the kingdom. And, you know, the American revolutionaries had their declaration of independence. That was a big deal, wasn't it? Karl Marx had his communist manifesto in which he spelled out, this is what it means to be a follower of the communist ideal. With this message, Jesus explained the agenda and the plan of his kingdom. And it presents a radically different conception of what the normal Jewish person in Jesus' day expected from the kingdom. Now, one other thing I need to say about the sermon on the plain that you understand, that it doesn't deal with salvation as such, but more so it lays out for the disciple and for the potential disciple what having Jesus as king means for daily living. In other words, the sermon on the plain is not primarily about how to come to salvation. Jesus deals with that in other places. More so, it's Jesus' announcement, if you want to be my follower, this is what's entailed. This is what's expected in my kingdom. Now, aren't you excited about that? Isn't this good? Shouldn't we just really prepare ourselves to receive something special from Jesus right here, right now? And in my mind, it's so special that I have no expectation whatsoever of making it through the entire Sermon on the Plain tonight. We're going to split this up into two parts, for this week and for next week. Because especially in the opening, there's something extremely powerful here. Let's look at it first. Now, I'm going to read it all together first, and then we're going to take it apart piece by piece, beginning now in the middle of verse 20. Ready for this? Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and cast your name as evil, cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Ladies and gentlemen, according to human wisdom, that's just plain crazy. It is. But let's take it apart piece by piece and examine it. It begins with the first line. Luke chapter 6, second part of verse 20 where he says this, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now notice the first word, blessed. Jesus promised blessing to his disciples. And here he's promising the poor that they can be blessed. Now, the idea behind that ancient Greek word for blessed is something like happy. But it's not happy just in the sense of, oh, an ice cream cone makes me happy. It's happy in a deep sense. It's happy with the sense of having great contentment and peace of heart. It's much more than the mere being comfortable or entertained at the moment. 
By the way, the same word that's translated blessed, which some people would say means happy, but actually it's greater than that. It's applied to God in 1 Timothy 1.11. You can remember that verse, 1 Timothy 1.11. Here it is. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It says that God himself is blessed. Now, don't you kind of sense the contentment, the happiness, the peace that radiates through the being of God? He's not anxious. He's not upset. He's not worried about things. God isn't hung up. God is, in the sense, blessed. He's happy in the fullest sense. And this is something that's very important to us. You want to be blessed this way. Now, even if you don't think you do, you do want to be blessed this way. And let me tell you why. I'll take you to another passage in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Jesus said that on the day of judgment, he would say to his people, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Blessed of my Father. You want to be blessed in the way that these statements describe you being blessed. Now, by the way, I want you to notice something else here. When Jesus said, blessed are you poor, he didn't mean you will be blessed someday. He means blessed now. He's not talking about some future thing. He means you can be blessed now. All right, that's the first part, blessed. Then he makes it all complicated because I could have figured it out very easily if he would have said, blessed are you rich. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? It does to me. But Jesus turns it around. He turns it on its head and he says, blessed are you poor. Now, just so you understand this, in the ancient Greek vocabulary, there are several words that can be used to describe poverty. And Jesus used the word here that describes a severe poverty. The idea is someone that's so poor that they have to beg for whatever they have. That's the level of poverty that Jesus is speaking of here. And so immediately, this statement strikes us with how strange it is. Blessed by being poor? That makes no sense at all. Yet the power and the wisdom in this truth is found in this. Is that the poor man must look to others for what he needs. He has no illusions about his own ability to provide for himself. When you have nothing, absolutely nothing, you know this. Whatever I need isn't going to be satisfied in me. Somebody else has to bring me this help. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is a lot of practical wisdom in what Jesus teaches. Just practical, everyday wisdom. Nevertheless... Do we not agree that he was a spiritual man who taught on spiritual themes? The poverty that Jesus had most in mind here is clarified by the statement in the Gospel of Matthew where he said what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I believe he has the same idea in mind here in Luke. Blessed are the poor in spirit Because the poor in spirit realize that they have no spiritual assets that they bring to the equation. They know that they're spiritually bankrupt. And poverty of spirit cannot be artificially induced by self-hatred. 
Go ahead, just you know, start hating on yourself and telling yourself. That's not how you get poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit comes from having your eyes open to just how weak, to just how frail, to just how needy you are apart from Jesus Christ. Some of you don't know that yet. Some of you still live in the illusion of that sort of spiritual can-do spirit, that you can do it. Some of you, and I mean this respectfully, even though I'm going to say it harsh, some of you are so foolish to believe that the answers are actually within you. Hello, there's nothing in there. You're spiritually bankrupt. What do you need? You need to look outside of yourself to Jesus Christ. Then he fills you with something special. Then he fills you with something amazing. But you come to the equation knowing that you come like a beggar in need. Now, you know what's beautiful about this? Everybody can start here. Each and every person. You see, it isn't first blessed are the pure. It isn't first, blessed are the holy. It isn't first, blessed are the spiritual or the wonderful. The great thing about being poor in spirit is everybody can do it. Every one of us can realize our spiritual poverty before God. So when Jesus said, blessed are you poor, I think he especially had in mind spiritual poverty, but, but I think it could be extended even beyond that because even the man who's poor materially has that great sense of dependence upon God. Ladies and gentlemen, I know this is a difficult thing, and you know, I, I know it's a difficult thing to preach in a community like this where there are many affluent people in our community, correct? There just are. And sometimes we just kind of come down to the equation that we don't appreciate enough that riches are a genuine obstacle to the kingdom of God. They are. Now, thank you, Jesus, they are not an insurmountable obstacle. And Jesus plainly told us so, did he not? Jesus plainly told us that it is possible with God, but he also told us that riches and ease of life present an additional obstacle to the kingdom of God. And listen, if that's you then just appreciate that and seek more than ever to use the resources God has given you in a way that glorifies Him so that you are not bound by this obstacle. So instead, whatever resources God has given you become a pathway to doing good for God and doing good in this world instead of being shackles that bind you. It's really an essential thing. Jesus speaks to it very powerfully. Now notice what he says here. Again, at the second part of verse 20, he says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. For those who are poor, in particular poor in spirit, so poor that they must beg, they are rewarded. What do they receive? They receive the greatest thing. They receive in a whole kingdom. They receive the kingdom of God. Therefore, poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for receiving the kingdom. I know I'm speaking pretty strong there, but I'll say it again. Poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for receiving the kingdom. As long as you think you can rescue yourself and, and, and make yourself righteous before God, you are never going to look to Jesus for righteousness the way that you should. Now, this blessing 
to the poor is placed first for a reason because I think the other statements build upon it. Let's take a look now. The second part of the statement, uh, verse 21a, the beginning part. He says, blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be filled. And you know what's remarkable about the hungry person? The hungry person seeks. The hungry person, so to speak, hunts. They need food. They look for food and they hope to satisfy their appetite. Their hunger drives them and gives them a single focus. I don't know if you've ever spoken with people who have lived through severe hunger. And I'm not talking about the self-imposed hunger that we put upon ourselves through dieting and such. Look, Well, that's its own category of misery, but I won't even speak to that. I'm speaking about people speaking in times of genuine famine. I'll never forget speaking to some elderly uh, people in Germany who were young after the end of the Second World War. And in those years after the war, it was a tremendous time of deprivation for the German people. And those who were young at that time, they remember it. They remember what it was like to just not have food for extended periods. And one of the things they'll talk about, if you can get people to talk about it, they'll talk about the singular focus it gives you. You just think about food a lot. And you're focused on it. You want it. Now, translate the Jesus, he did give us practical wisdom, but this was a spiritual man speaking on spiritual themes. And when he's talking about hunger, he's talking about the single focus that we must have upon him and upon his righteousness, the same way that a hungry person has a singular focus upon food. Their passion is real, just like hunger is real. Their passion is natural, just like hunger is natural in a healthy person. Their their passion is intense, just like hunger is. Their passion can be painful at times, just like hunger pains. Their passion is a driving force, just like the hunger can drive a man. And I'll tell you what else, their passion is a sign of health. Because if you're actually starving, it's a sign of health for you to be hungry. And that's what it's like for the person who hungers after the things of God. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus said this in a day and in a culture that really knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty. Modern men and women, or at least those of us in the Western world, we have very little conception of this, but people have at time and place. They know what it's like to be hungry. Now, if I can make reference back to Jesus' other version of this message. I think the same basic message given on a different occasion, the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say in that? He says this. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, Jesus is not merely speaking of a physical hunger. And even his sermon here in Luke, as it's recorded, implies this kind of longing. And when you've got this hunger for righteousness, it expresses itself in a lot of ways. First of all, A man will long to be righteous in his nature. He'll want to be more sanctified, to be made more holy. He'll long to dwell in God's righteousness, and he'll want to see righteousness promoted in the world. Now, what's the promise to this person who hungers like this? Do you see the beautiful promise? What is it? You shall be filled. God will fill it. If you hunger after God, he'll fill it. Isn't that a beautiful promise? 
Because let me tell you, there's so many other things in this world that no matter how much you hunger after it, you'll never reach it. No matter how much you long for fulfillment in that particular area, it'll escape your satisfaction. But isn't this the glorious thing about being sold out as a follower of Jesus Christ? You seek after Him like a hungry man seeks after food, and God will satisfy you. He'll fill you. That's precious. Now, now maybe you're not satisfied. I don't think it's unusual to find Christians who say, you know, I follow God, I do that Christian stuff, but it seems pretty empty, it seems kind of lame to me. What do you do with all that? I'll tell you, in my mind, the essential thing for those people is, are you hungry? Is there a passion and intensity behind your seeking of God? That's what Jesus is communicating to us here. Now, the next part of it, here the second part of verse 21, he says what? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. This weeping is for the low and needy condition of both the individual and society. I look at myself and I weep. And then I look at the world around me and I weep. But with the awareness that we're needy, both as individuals and as a society, why are we needy? Because of sin. You see, the ones who weep, I think they actually weep over sin and its effects. In another place in the scriptures, it describes it like this, godly sorrow that produces repentance. That's how Paul described it in 2 Corinthians. Those who weep, they know something special about God. They know something special about what Paul called in another place, the fellowship of his sufferings. Lord, I weep, I grieve, I hurt over the condition of this sinful world and of my sinful self. And what's the promise to those people? For you shall laugh. Friends, sometimes the happiest thing you can do is grieve over your spiritual condition. It doesn't feel good at the moment. But believe you me, it is the pathway to true happiness, to true contentment. People who are able to grieve over their place. It's almost as if Jesus had in mind this quotation from Psalm 30 verse 5 where it says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You weep for that period, yes, but then God sends his joy. Now I want you to notice something, especially in the last two statements, there's been this paradoxical statement of now. You see, Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You see, In these descriptions of a person's spiritual condition in terms of poverty, hungry, and weeping, Jesus used that hopeful word, now. You're poor, now, but one day you're going to receive the kingdom. You're hungry, now, but one day you'll be filled. You weep now, but one day you'll laugh. And doesn't this just give you some hope right now? Let's say you look at your condition, poor, Hungry and weeping. Well, that's where you are today. But you know, God has a fulfillment for you if you will seek Jesus and his kingdom. If you'll apply that drive in your life towards the things of God. Now, I have to say, it's helpful to bring up at this point that some people are taken with the idea that Jesus was more of a community organizer or a political revolutionary than he was a true preacher and teacher. And that what Jesus meant by these statements of blessing 
was to subvert the social order and to give power to the oppressed. That's mainly what they think Jesus was doing here. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that Jesus was extremely concerned to give power to the oppressed. But he set his focus against the greatest oppression of all, the tyranny of sin and separation from God in and over a man. And while not ignoring the needs of the poor and the hungry and the weeping in the physical sense, Jesus focused on a spiritual revolution that would change them and eventually would change society. I want to be very clear on this. In fact, what Jesus said here is against the spirit of the social revolutionary. Do you know why? Because what Jesus said here gave people hope in their present poverty, in their present hunger, in their present weeping. You see, the revolutionary wants to take away all present hope and demands that people take immediate action, and it's usually violent and sometimes murderous action. Why? Supposedly to change things. But ladies and gentlemen, the bitter thinking of this revolutionary kind of attitude can be seen in the hundreds and millions dead murdered by communist ideology, and Jesus shows us a better way, a way of true hope, a way of transforming people an individual at a time. And this, this is the true hope. Now, building on that all, look at verse 22. Jesus says this, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil. For the Son of Man's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Please, if you weren't scratching your head before, you're scratching it now, aren't you? Blessed, poor, hungry, and, and, uh, and what was the third one? Weeping. Blessed are those three. Oh, okay. All right, Jesus. I'm trying to get my head around that. And now, be happy that they hate you. I, I just picture, you know, a kid coming home from school, so excited, talking to mom. And mom saying, what's so great about today? And he goes, guess what, mom? They hate me. It's like, this goes against everything, how we normally think. We think of the people who see themselves as spiritually poor and hungry and those who with weeping seek God. And we think that it's impossible that those people could be hated. Right? You look at the life that is typified by somebody who follows Jesus in poverty of spirit with a true hungerish desire to seek after Him, and who really weep over their own sin. You look at those, who would ever hate people like that? But the fact of the matter is that people do hate them, do they not? Not only that, Jesus said this, that they will exclude you, revile you, and cast out your name as evil. This speaks of the extent of hatred that would be brought against these followers of Jesus. And Jesus said that these worst things would come upon them. All, notice it says right there, for the Son of Man's sake. Ladies and gentlemen, it didn't take long for those words to be very literally fulfilled among the followers of Jesus. Early Christians heard many enemies exclude them. They were often reviled, and many times they were regarded with their names as evil. Do you know what they said about the early Christians? 
They accused them of things like this. They said Christians are cannibals. Why? Because of the gross and deliberate misrepresentations of the practice of the Lord's Supper. They get together and they eat bodies and they drink blood. That's what Christians do when they get together. They accused them of cannibalism. They accused early Christians of immorality. Do you know why? They said they get together and they have these love feasts. And who knows what goes on inside of those things. They accused the early Christians of revolutionary fanaticism because they believed Jesus is going to return and he's going to put an end to this craziness in this world. They accused early Christians of splitting families Because when one marriage partner or another parent became a Christian, there was often change or division in the family. And they accused Christians of being treasonous because they would not honor the Roman gods and worship the Roman emperors as if they were deities. None of those accusations were true, but they lied about the early Christians again and again. Now, if I could just make this point, ladies and gentlemen, they still lie about Christians today. They still say that, well, Christians are filled with hate towards other people. I don't know who these people are that they talk about. I see every once in a while some bizarre clowns, you know, covered by the television news who march around with disgusting signs and this and that. Those people are such an aberration that you just wonder why they, you know. Do the Christians, you know, are they filled with hatred? Now, if they are, you should probably rebuke them. But it's just not the rule, is it? Just because people say it about us doesn't mean it's true. You know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But what do we do when they hate us this way? Well, Jesus told us what to do. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That's a paradox to be so happy when you're so hated. Yet these persecuted ones can do it. Why? He made it very clear. Because great is your reward in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, if heaven isn't real, then we're in a lot of trouble when it comes down to this stuff. If heaven isn't real, then the Sermon on the Plain doesn't make sense. And actually, we're following in the footsteps of the prophets before us who were also persecuted. I remember reading in one of my commentaries this old Puritan, fusty old guy named John Trapp. He named some men who did in fact rejoice and leap for joy when they were persecuted. He talks about a man named George Roper. George Roper came to the stake leaping for joy. And when he was brought to the stake to be burned at it to death, he put his arms around it and he leaped at it and he hugged it like it was a friend. Then he describes another man named Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor leapt and danced a little as he came to his execution, saying when he was asked, how are you? He said, well, God be praised, good master sheriff, never better because I'm almost home I am almost at my father's house. Then he described a man named Lawrence Sanders who with a smiling face hugged his stake when he came to it at his execution. And then he kissed it. And this is what he said. He said, welcome the cross of Christ. Welcome everlasting life. Listen, you and I hear that and we go, that's crazy. I could never do such a thing. No, no. You follow Jesus today, and in the extremity of that moment, he'll give you the ability to live up to him in that moment. 
I don't believe that these men were super Christians of a class far beyond what we are as followers of God today. But if you serve God and if you're faithful to Him in the moment now, then in the extremity of that moment, you would be able to do the same thing. Because God empowering you would have the strength to do it. Verse 24. Now before were the blessings, now here are the woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Woe is an expression of regret and compassion. It's not a threat. These woes seem just as paradoxical as the blessings. I normally don't see any woe in being rich. I don't see any woe in being full or in laughing or in being spoken well of. To me, those are all good things. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Look at the dangers in them. And the real heart of the kingdom is not found in those things in themselves. So he says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. You see, riches, no sense of need, No uh, uh, stop of excitement all the time in the life. All those good times. They are an obstacle to the kingdom. And we normally won't come to Jesus the way we should until we know that we're poor, needy, and need comfort. You see, in each one of these paradoxical sayings, Jesus contrasted the current expectations of the kingdom with the spiritual reality of His kingdom. Jesus told us that God does unexpected things. Jesus mocked the world's values. He exalted what the world despises, and He rejected what the world admires. He turned upside down. Or shouldn't we say He turned right side up? Their perceptions of the kingdom of God. Now look, we're running later than I thought. Let me just read verses 27 and 28. You know, probably next week, I think we're probably going to begin at verses 27 and 28, but why don't I just repeat it? Because it's so good. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Ladies and gentlemen, can you just relish, can you just immerse yourself in the paradox of all this? Can you imagine being in Jesus' audience on that day and listening to him deliver this message and going, this man teaches stuff that's so strange, but I know it's true. I know it's true. I know it's true because it comes from the lips of a holy man of God who lives it thoroughly. I know it's true because the Spirit of God testifies to my heart that it's true as well. And this shockingly simple command, love your enemies. That's a wonderful one, isn't it? Do you know what your enemies are like? They're like your enemies. They don't like you. They hate you. What did Jesus say to them? Love them. There have been times, and I guess we'll wrap it up here. There have been times in my Christian experience where I've been so at odds with somebody I just, man, you're just angry, you're frustrated, you're butting your head against them. Maybe they've done painful or hurtful things to you. You just look at them and, and they're, you know, man, they're just my enemy. They're out to get me. And then I think, oh, no, I shouldn't have called them my enemy. 
Because what do you got to do then? (laughs) Then I have to love them. I have to love them. But the big question is, how? How do you love an enemy? Join us next week as we continue on in the Sermon on the Plain. Well, really, I mean, I can't, we just don't have time for this tonight. All right, look, let me conclude on this point. As much as anything, we sense how we need to come to God very aware of our spiritual need. Being able to say, Jesus, I'm empty and you're full. Would you please fill me? Ladies and gentlemen, whatever it is that keeps you from that thing is like poison in your life. If your popularity keeps you from coming to Jesus and saying, I'm empty and you're full, please fill me, then your popularity is a dangerous poison in your life. If the comfort of your life, if your youthful energy, if your beauty, your handsomeness, if your wealth or comfort of life, whatever you might say it is, whatever it is in your life, that keeps you from coming to Jesus like someone who's poor, like someone who's hungry, and like someone who's weeping. That thing is a dangerous poison in your life. Shouldn't we ask Jesus now to just say, Jesus, you are the antidote for those poisons. Won't you please come and give it to me? Father, that's our prayer. We need this, Jesus. We, we feel... Like there's some holy ground on this level place where you delivered this message. And so we say now to you, Jesus, won't you work these things deep into our soul? We feel like we're just beginning, like we're just getting started on this message. But Lord, we need to embrace the paradox of this all. And not just assume that we know what it is to be a part of your kingdom. Jesus, we open our hearts and our minds to you all over again, and we say, teach us what your kingdom means. Do it, Lord, for your sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.